So Nick, I've noticed in my clinic that for a lot of the women that come and see me, I am their only doctor. Yeah, you know, and I think one of the hardest things about that, Faye, is that it's really hard as an OBGYN just not having been in the primary care sphere for a couple of years now to know where to reach out and look for, like, what do I do to do this screening or that screening? Yeah, exactly. Like, I completely have forgotten when to screen people for, you know, their lipid panel, when to get their A1C, when do they get the colonoscopies. But the good thing is this is all there on the OBG Project. If you head on over to the OBG Project's website, they have a special tab entitled Primary Care that actually has a lot of updates regarding things like treating type 2 diabetes, screening for things like abdominal aortic aneurysm and colonoscopy, lipid therapies, all the stuff that was really, really useful to you once upon a time and you probably forgot, but maybe you need once again. And while I still tell all my patients that they definitely need a primary care doctor and not just an OBGYN, this way at least you're able to kind of hold them over until they do find that PCP. The OBG Project has a product called OBG First that's free for chief residents for one whole year. If you head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar and you as a chief resident can get access to all of their stuff for absolutely free. But even if you're not a chief resident, check out the OBG Project look at the resources they have on the website, and get better in your clinic. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. We have back with us again Dr. Dave Edmondson, who's the medical director of the lymphedema program, the chairman of the cancer committee, and associate professor of surgery and obstetrics and gynecology at Women and Infants Hospital and the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University. Welcome back, Dr. Edmondson. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so, Dr. Edmondson, last time you talked to us a little bit about how do you work up a lump um, and also talked to us about uh, breast imaging in terms of the BIRAD scoring system and breast density. Um, and today we were hoping that you could talk to us a little bit more about management of those uh, atypical findings. Um, so, for example, let's say someone comes in, they get their um, imaging, they get their biopsy, and they have some kind of abnormal finding. What are some abnormal findings that they could have? So there is a large sandbox of the different pathologies that could come back from a biopsy. And I think just to start off, I think it's important to say and to pass along to not only providers, but to patients that the gold standard nowadays is for image-guided core biopsy to establish a diagnosis. The day and age of excisional biopsies to establish a diagnosis is far gone and we should be avoiding it at all costs. And simply because more and more we're finding that a lot of these lesions don't require surgical, and a lot of the more benign related lesions don't require surgical intervention. But even if it does require surgical interventions, whether we're talking about atypical cells, in situ cells, or invasive cancer cells, the surgery for each one of those entities is different. And by knowing what we're dealing with ahead of time, we can better gauge what is the appropriate surgery to do, or if they're, especially in the setting of invasive cancers, 
important to know whether or not we should be doing surgery first or should we do some sort of systemic therapy first. So I think that's uh, paramount. With respect to the different pathologies that we see, um, I think it's best to start with the ones that would absolutely require surgical intervention of some sort. And so let's start off with the atypical ductal hyperplasias, the atypical lobular hyperplasias, the flat epithelial atypias, and the one that I often refer to as a misnomer, which is lobular carcinoma in situ. It's a misnomer because it is no longer, really never has been considered a cancer. It's more of an atypical cell. Uh, All of these lesions, all four of them, are what we refer to as lesions that predict a particular risk for developing a breast cancer in the future. Um, So we will develop strategies for how to manage these patients based on levels of risk. But also, if you look at the data on core needle biopsies that demonstrate any one of those four lesions, the recommendation is for surgical excision of those lesions simply because there's about a 15 to 20% upstaging rate when you take these areas out surgically. Now, the rates are not exactly the same for each one of these. The most significant one is probably the atypical ductal hyperplasia and the libular carcinoma in situ in terms of predictive for finding something more significant there. That would change management. Regardless, we recommend surgical excision so that we can better establish what the diagnosis is, make sure there's nothing there that would upstage it that would change management strategies. And we then use this information, and again, we use the Gale risk models and the tire Cusick modeling to help estimate levels of risk with these types of lesions. And these risk models do take into account those different lesions and help us generate a level of risk similar to, in, excuse me, in addition to that, going back to our previous episode, most of these models, especially the tire Cusick model, now takes into account breast density and, and does breast density does alter the level of risk associated with these lesions. Uh, the most recent version of Tyre Cusick was his version 8. We we all kind of agree that it overestimates the level of risk associated with density, but it at least gives us a starting point and a discussion point to have with these patients. So in these patients with um, these high-risk lesions, we usually look at it from two different perspectives. One is if they have a higher risk for breast cancer, we usually modify their screening strategy, similar to the way we talked about with breast density, that if they're risk level exceeds 20%, we'll often talk about adding an MRI to the screening approach. In addition, there have been some randomized controlled trials looking at uh, medications that block the hormone receptors in these particular patient populations. And the studies have shown that taking these medications, such as tamoxifen or Evista, have resulted in about a 50% reduction in risk for developing cancers in the future. So that's often the discussion point that we have with these patients when they present with these atypical cells. So that's one group of possibilities of what these biopsies should, could, could show. Another possibility is what is referred to as ductal carcinoma in situ. So it's within confined within the ductal system of the breast. The cancer cells are filling that tube, often manifesting as calcifications. They have not, the cancer cells have not broken through the wall of the duct. And um, they've sometimes been given the name precancers, which I would disagree with. I usually refer to them as in situ cancers or non-invasive cancers, meaning they don't have the potential to spread outside of the breast. When a core needle biopsy shows us this, we need to we know that we need to do 
uh, what's referred to as a lumpectomy, also referred to as a partial mastectomy. Um, and that is typically the case. There are cases where patients present with such extensive abnormality relative to the size of the breast that require more extensive surgery, such as a mastectomy with reconstruction. Um, in those cases where the patients have smaller lesions, uh, they would typically be recommended to have radiation that followed that. Um, there's a lot of different strategies for the way radiation is done nowadays. A lot of it is dependent upon patient age, what is the extent of the disease, what are the grade of the disease. And the most common scenarios is five days a week for six and a half weeks of radiation following a lumpectomy. There is a lot of data that came out of Canada about a three and a half week protocol, which is basically the same overall dosage of radiation compressed down to three and a half weeks. And they have over 15 years of data to show that the outcomes are essentially the same. And then in some of the older populations, some of the smaller, uh, lower graded ductal carcinoma in situ, we also talk about a five-day course of what's referred to as accelerated partial breast irradiation. That strategy is not one that's available to everybody, but certainly is something in discussion for those patients that meet that criteria. In patients who have too much of an extent of disease within the breast within the with these in situ lesions. Those patients who have mastectomy typically do not require radiation. The only caveat to that would be is if they were found to have invasive disease that would meet appropriate criteria for uh, post-mastectomy radiation. And those, generally speaking, are few and far between. If you look at the data on patients who uh, undergo surgical biopsy or surgical excision for Core biopsy demonstrating ductal carcinoma in situ, there is about a 20 to 30% upstaging rate with that patient population. So we do have that discussion with patients. Um, but statistically speaking, generally rare. Uh, the premise behind doing a partial mastectomy or a lumpectomy is to get the tumor out with normal tissue around it. Uh, we refer to that as our margins. Um, so once we're able to get clean margins, then that would be followed by radiation. If you look at the data on uh, patients undergoing lumpectomy, 20 to 30% nationally will have to go back for additional surgery for margins. Um, the reason is that the tumors are themselves are microscopic in nature. We can't always see the full extent. We can't feel it. And there is no intraoperative assessment that has been shown to be reliable for us to accurately, accurately um, establish what the margins are while they're at surgery. Um, and therefore sometimes require a second surgery to uh, clean out the margins. The third big, big broad category of what, an, of what a core needle biopsy could show would be invasive cancer. The two most common kinds are invasive ductal and invasive lobular cancers. Um, invasive ductal cancers obviously arise from the ductal system, the lobular to Lobular cancers arise from the glandular tissue of the breast. The nuance between the lobulars and the ductals is that the lobulars are often the real tricky ones. They're the ones that often don't show up on imaging at all. They don't necessarily form a, math, a mass per se. Uh, if you go back to basic histology, they're the ones that you see these sheets or lines of cells that uh, can make them very difficult to identify. And typically they are less aggressive than the ductal cancers overall, 
Um, but there, I usually counsel patients that they were much trickier in terms, especially when it comes to knowing the full extent of disease prior to surgery and, and establishing good, clean margins. Regardless, when we have an invasive breast cancer, the implication that's there is that these are the ones that have the potential to spread outside of the breast. Therefore, it's typically necessary to evaluate lymph nodes with these invasive cancers. Um, and so that would be paired with the either lumpectomy slash partial mastectomy versus a mastectomy with the option of reconstruction. Um, there are different management strategies that exist dependent upon the size and extent of these tumors. On occasion, we do recommend doing either chemotherapy up front, or we're also doing what's referred to as neoadjuvant endocrine therapy up front to try and shrink these tumors. The primary goal for that had always been to try and convert patients who were mastectomy-only candidates to patients who have the option for breast conservation. Um, that piece of it still exists. The other nuance that has come with some of the more recent research is that it also potentially offers us the option of doing less surgery in the lymph nodes. For instance, in those patients that present with node-positive disease, if we give them treatment up front, typically that would be neoadjuvant chemotherapy up front, and we are able to get those lymph nodes to normalize, we are potentially able to offer them less surgery um, based on some data that is in existence as well as some of the research studies that we've participated through through some of the national trials that are beginning to look at whether or not there's a subpopulation of patient that doesn't require axillary dissection and minimize the risk for a lot of the sequelae of removing those lymph nodes, most predominantly the paresthesias and the lymphedema. In addition, in patients who do require axillary dissection, there's some new surgical techniques that uh, exist to try and reestablish continuity of the lymphatics coming out of the arm. I took a course for this uh, about a year ago, and we've begun using these strategies here at Women and Infants in which we identify the lymphatics coming out of the arm and reanastomose them to the veins and reestablish that lymphatic system and hopefully and based on the data that exists out there, are able to lower the risk for these patients developing lymphedema. I guess one of the other questions, Dr. Edmondson, that can come to us after seeing a patient that has a pathologic finding, such as a DCIS or a true cancer, is what happens to them for screening after a cancer? So does it depend on the pathology? Does it depend on the surgery? Is there some combination of things that it depends on? Uh, it's a great question. You're right. It, some of it does depend on the pathology. Uh, certain pathologies are of higher risk uh, for locally recurrent disease. Some are based on what procedure they had done. So in a patient who, but more and more, things are more dependent on the biology of what we're seeing. However, if you look at the data that brought us from mastectomy for everybody to lumpectomy, uh, you have to break it down into what is the risk for local recurrence and what is the risk for metastatic disease. And so in reality, screening is only looking at the risk for local recurrence. So if you look on the data for local recurrence for patients undergoing lumpectomy with negative surgical margins followed by radiation therapy, the risk for in-breast recurrence is about 2 to 4% over 10 years. So in the vast majority of patients, studies have now shown that most of these patients require nothing more than annual screening mammography. So, Dr. Edmondson, I think um, 
another question that we as general OBGYNs uh, may have for breast specialists is just when we have a patient that may have breast cancer, um, who should we kind of set the expectation for that they may actually not need any chemotherapy versus those people who probably will need chemotherapy? That's a great question as well. And we have a lot of patients come in that that is their greatest fear is the need for chemotherapy. And the good news is, is that the, there's more and more data coming out showing that more and more women do not require chemotherapy. So we, so so much now depends on uh, the biology of the tumor. And so let's start with your common variety breast cancer, which is typically a grade one or grade two invasive ductal cancer or invasive lobular cancer that has the presence of estrogen and progesterone receptors on it and does not have the HER2 receptors on it. Um, those are the patients that we don't really know whether or not they're going to require chemotherapy. And there now exists a test that helps us to better determine which one of those patients need chemotherapy and which ones don't. And it's called the Oncotype DX test. There's also the Mammaprint test. There's a couple other ones that are out there. But generally speaking, they're all looking at the genomics or the genetic makeup of the tumor cells themselves. They're looking at a variety of different genes and the presence or absence of those genes within the tumor, which are generally speaking proliferation genes. And through an algorithm that was developed through some very complex statistical research, um, they were able to generate initially a three-tiered system. There was the high-risk lesions, which have been shown to definitely benefit from chemotherapy. There are the low-risk population, which have not been shown to benefit from chemotherapy. And then there was the intermediate group of patients in which their score came back as one that we weren't sure if they were to benefit from chemotherapy. And so that would often be a very uh, taxing conversation between the medical oncologist and the patient. They have recently done a study to better determine that intermediate group and see if they couldn't classify it into two groups instead of three. And that was called the Taylor RX trial. And basically, the results of that trial were released about nine months ago. And what it showed was patients with a score of 25 or more benefited from chemotherapy. Patients with a score of 25 or less did not benefit from chemotherapy. So it still leaves a gray area for those patients under the age of 50, but again, helps to better diversify who needs chemotherapy and who doesn't. So in those patients who do not possess estrogen, progesterone, or HER2 new receptors. That means we have no targeted agents that we can go after to shut these cancer cells off if they've traveled outside of the body. And so those patients by default need chemotherapy. The only caveat to be would be as if their actual volume of uh, invasive disease was so small that the statistical probability of their developing metastatic disease was small enough that it doesn't make sense. Um, finally, for those patients who have tumors with the HER2 new receptor on them. There are a number of medications that exist now that block that HER2 receptor. Studies that have been done for the most part show that those medications have been most effective when used in conjunction with traditional chemotherapy. So those with HER2 positive tumors will typically require chemotherapy. And there's a lot of what I often refer to to my patients as cocktails of 
chemotherapy agents and the specific nature of their tumor presence or absence of nodal disease helps them to fine tune what specific and how long, what specific chemotherapy agents they need and how long they'll need it for. Patients whose tumors are sensitive to estrogen and progesterone, um, those patients will almost certainly be recommended for medications that block the estrogen and progesterone receptors. The typical pattern is for five years of therapy, so taking a pill once a day for five years. For premenopausal women, the only medication that's available is tamoxifen. For postmenopausal females, the options are either tamoxifen or a different class of medication called the aromatase inhibitors. Uh, the aromatase inhibitors in more recent studies have not only been shown to be somewhat more effective than tamoxifen, but also the side effect profile is a little bit better. There is a subpopulation of patients who are considered to be higher risk, and there's a lot of different factors that are utilized to determine who's in this high risk group. Again, typically based on pathology and extent of disease, but Studies have shown that they benefit from 10 years over five years. And then there's various patterns in between there as well as current ongoing studies looking to try and better optimize the length of therapy for these patients with estrogen and progesterone receptor sensitive tumors. All right, Dr. Edmondson, thanks so much again for joining us and sharing all of this knowledge. You're very welcome. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So you guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, and if you want to give us some support, go to www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. If you need notes for today's show or any one of our past shows, head on over to CreogsOverCoffee.com. And if you want to send us a message or give us any suggestions for any upcoming shows, go ahead and email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 